Welcome to Classic Paranormal, where we bring you true stories of the weird, strange, and otherworldly from works of literature from the past that time forgot. Don't forget to hit the share button to help promote this podcast. In this sixth episode of the series, you'll be entertained by Hamlin Garland's 40 Years of Psychic Research, first published in 1936. Chapter 16. Weird Music. Upon entering the psychic's little parlor the following morning, we found the table, the stool, and the easy chair just as we had left them, close beside the piano, and I again took my seat on Fuller's right, leaving to him the end of the bench nearest the keyboard. This was in anticipation of the composer's wish to have additional bars of his composition played from time to time. It is the influence of the habitual and the normal which makes belief in the supernormal so difficult. In this pleasant, commonplace little room, spirits of any sort seemed incredible, and yet whispers began almost immediately, so strong and so distinct that Fuller was able to converse with the invisible composer quite as if he were present in the flesh. Edward again assumed control. Mrs. Hartley and her guide Coulter retired, leaving Fuller in full charge of the proceedings. Played as it stands, Fuller, the composer said. Fuller played the melody again, eight measures of it, and the composer said, That's right, now go over it, adding the bass. Fuller complied as well as he could, but the difficulties involved in holding the slate and reading the scattered notation made it difficult. However, two or three brief passages were written in, and when he took them to the piano and played them with both hands, the composer expressed pleasure. The treble and bass are correct separately, he said, but they are not played together in correct time. I am aware of that, replied Fuller. I find it very difficult. I am surprised that anything so simple should be considered difficult, the invisible one remarked. I want you to fill in the treble and the bass. As it stands, it is nothing but a bare melody. I'm not qualified to do that, protested Fuller. You're getting beyond me. You're too modest, the composer replied with an effect of genial comradeship. This dialogue, which I recorded later, shows how far beyond the psychic's dramatizing skill these interchanges were. I had the feeling that she had not yet learned that E.A., Edward Alexander, and McDowell were all designations of one and the same person. I do not think she knew that he spelled his name MacDowell instead of McDowell. However, this is not vital and I pass it. At this point, an amazing episode began. I had been leaning forward on the table and Fuller was busily receiving and recording the musical notation. And now, feeling a little cramped, I took my arms from the table and settled back in my chair. Instantly, and with a note of anxiety in his voice, the invisible composer whispered, Where's Garland? I can't see him. Garland, where are you? Here I am, I replied, replacing my arms upon the table. With a sigh of relief, the invisible one said, I see you now. Don't go away. It was as if for the moment I had moved out of his ectoplasmic spotlight. It was evident that the withdrawal of my arms from a few inches took me completely out of his perception. The narrow range of his perception appeared later in several forms. Two or three times while in the midst of his dictation to Fuller, he paused to ask, Is Garland here? He could see Fuller and he could minutely follow the musical notation but he could not at the same moment perceive me. And yet I was less than three feet away. At times he could see my hand or elbow, but not my head. On the table were pencils and some sheets of paper. And in order to record from moment to moment these immensely significant and mysterious happenings, I was hastily penciling words and phrases to assist my memory in reviewing the seance. When the composer, interrupting his composition, sharply whispered, What is Garland doing? I see his hand moving. I replied, I'm making notes, Edward. Don't do it, he protested. It worries me. This gave me much thought then and thereafter. Why did he not say, Garland, what are you doing? Why did he ask Fuller? If he could see the slates, why could he not see me? Why did my moving hand worry him? I don't know. Some will say it was a clever play of the psychic. I do not think so. 
I wish to emphasize once more the fact that the slates which Fuller held and upon which he was receiving the music were at least four feet away from the psychic across the table and directly in front of her. The writing on the slate was wholly out of her sight and upside down. She could see only the back of the slates. There was no discernible mirror on the wall and even if there had been, she could not have checked the subtle points of the composition. We now tried to get the name of the composition. On the slate, the word isn't here was again written, varied in spelling. And as Fuller spoke several Slavic and Italian words which meant gypsy, the written word changed in accordance with each suggestion and was finally spelled Zinger or Zingara. This would seem to argue that Fuller's mind dominated the writer. On other points, however, the composer's will was opposed to Fuller's. Once after recording some dictation, Fuller said, This can't be right. It can be, and it is right, retorted the composer. Fuller persisted, but it is very unusual to begin a measure in that way. Quick, imperious, exactly like McDowell as I knew him came the retort, it is a liberty I permit myself. He spoke as the master, one who makes rules. Later he seemed to weaken, to suffer a loss of memory as well as of skill. Once he said, that final note is wrong. It should be an eighth note and not a quarter note. Thereupon Fuller closed the slates and laid them on the stool between us. A few moments later he opened them and showed me that the minute flag had been put with miraculous precision exactly on the stem of the disputed note. Again and again we tested this incredible skill. Notes that had been sketched were touched up. Others were set exactly on extra lines drawn above or below the staff. There was no indecision or fumbling. Supernormal in fact, these changes were supernormal in execution. Fuller once said, that bar, number seven, is not properly filled. You were right, the composer replied, and directed that a curved line be drawn connecting the three notes and that a figure two be written above the curve. I don't understand that, said Fuller. Never mind, replied EA with kindly tone. I will write it differently. You may cancel the figure two and complete the measure with a rest. This is but one of the many subtleties which were entirely outside my knowledge and over the head of the psychic, I am sure. In some cases, Fuller confessed that he was puzzled. At this point, the composer reverted to the uncompleted message that I had received on the manila pad in Judah's library. According to my notes, made at the moment, he said, Garland, this is a certain attitude which I took to Schubert. I want you to regain it and take it to Schmidt. Mary will know about it. He then added with an effect of sadness and confusion, I meant to take it away, but did I? I was so badly off mentally that I don't know whether I did or not. Fuller asked, Do you mean Schubert, the music publisher? Yes. I then said, You want this manuscript recovered from Schubert and given to your regular publisher, Schmidt? Yes. All of this, the reader will recall, was wholly in opposition to our thought when the message first came on the pad in Judah's library. It is evident that our minds had not given rise to this latter request. Furthermore, the composer's confession of his brain trouble a year before his death must be reckoned with. The psychic could have known nothing of that, for no one knew it except his closest friends. Fuller then said, What shall be done with this fragment, Unger? Shall we publish it? His reply was curt, That is what it is for. How many bars are in it? asked Fuller. And as the composer was silent, he added, Are there as many as forty? More. Are there as many as sixty? Fuller persisted with intent to suggest an answer. Yes, sixty or seventy, was the reply. And to me, this reply was like a mental echo. For a moment, Fuller's mind appeared to dominate the composer's thought. I felt that if he had said, are there eighty bars, the answer would have been yes. It is significant also to note that Edward continued to speak of his wife as Mary, whereas her name was Marion. Later, I asked Mrs. McDowell if he had ever called her Mary. She replied, never. 
let the reader ponder the fact that we now had the completed message of which I had received only a fragment on the manila pad, and which I had taken at the moment to be a request for the playing of a Schubert selection, with a totally different meaning. That the composer's wish had persisted for two days against my concept of his meaning, and in opposition to all our thought, is evident. Have Schubert. I now understood that to be part of a sentence which when completed would have read, Have Schubert return that piece of musical composition which I forgot to bring away from his office. It is only fair to say that this argues the action of an independent, personal, disincarnate intelligence. To say that it all came from Mrs. Hartley argues too much subtlety. Furthermore, it was conveyed to us by a voice independent of her lips and tongue and by writing without contact. At the end of this sitting, I felt like one who would walk the verge of a new dimension. Fuller, in his final report, which is precise, orderly, and scientific, arranged the phenomena of this sitting in three divisions. He says, quote, We had, first, phenomena with the composer in cooperation. Second, the composer in wholly independent action. Third, the composer in direct opposition to our thought. He also emphasized the fact that the psychic and her guides had finally withdrawn, quite unconcerned apparently with what went on. The sittings came to be a matter of Fuller, Garland, and McDowell. For the benefit of those with musical education, I copy the following paragraphs from Fuller's report. Quote, Two further examples of the composer's independence from our influence will perhaps suffice. In the sixth measure, there was a run of three-eighth notes in the treble, exactly above a corresponding run of three-eighth notes in the bass. In making a revision, the invisible composer directed that each of these three pairs of notes should be joined by stems. This took the treble notes down to the bass and left the last half of the treble bar empty, a fact unnoticed by me and wholly beyond the purview of the psychic or of Garland. The composer, however, observed the hiatus and himself directed the insertion of two rests. A curious point to finish with. On the first day, I inquired of certain doubtful notes by name as A, C-sharp, D, and the like, while the composer indicated their positions by specifying lines and spaces as third space, second line, and so on. The next day when I made my inquiries on the basis of lines and spaces, the composer oftenest named the notes by letter, an entire change of action, end quote. One explanation of this might be that the composer, knowing that I had no knowledge of music, adapted himself to my ignorance by naming spaces and lines. But when Fuller, entirely competent to follow his musical nomenclature, came into the case, he naturally reacted by the use of letters. We both felt for the hour that we were in actual mental contact with Edward McDowell, and that the psychic was not uttering the whispers ventriloquially. In proof of this, I record the following colloquy. Toward the end, as we were holding the slate between us, the composer whispered to me, Fuller is a fine fellow. I met him twice. Fuller heard this. Can you tell me where? Without hesitation, the composer spoke. Yes, it was in New York City. Then after a moment, he added, It was at a dinner both times. You are right, replied Fuller. Can you tell me exactly where? Once it was a dinner on Fifth Avenue. The other was. I can't tell the location precisely. But it was down cellar, down a short flight of steps. That is correct, I said, for I was there. Can you tell us who the other guests were? His voice grew hesitant. Well, Mary was there, and John Lane, and you, of course, and Fuller, and... Again he hesitated, and his voice weakened. He seemed to sigh. I can't be sure of the others. Fuller looked at me in amazement. How could this information come from Mrs. Hartley's mind? Granted that she was a ventriloquist, how could she know of that down-cellar dinner on 6th Avenue? There was something touching and convincing in the sigh of regret with which the composer confessed his lapse of memory. This meant more to me than it did to Fuller, for I first detected McDowell's disease at this dinner. It was the beginning of his nervous breakdown. 
From whatever angle it is viewed, this proves the power of the psychic to acquire facts which were in our minds but unuttered. Ventriloquism could not account for the knowledge she put into words. And yet, Edward still spoke of his wife as Mary instead of Marion, her real name. And equally puzzling was the fact that while he spoke from the air in front of Fuller, he continued to see and direct his pencil from behind him. Throughout the sitting, which was long and tiresome, the composer remained courteous. But in expression, he grew more and more the master. His talk with Fuller became highly technical. When he asked that a dot be added to a note, Fuller placed it after the note. The composer instantly detected this and protested, No, no! put it over the note, above the staff. In his formal report, Fuller states, quote, As the work of the correction progressed, the composer several times asked for opportunity to make the changes himself. Thereupon, I would enclose a pencil tip in the slate and the proper correction would be made. In cases where I made the changes which he described, he watched the progress of the pencil, a larger pencil than the one we used between the lines. He gave directions as to its use. Not there, he would say as I started to make a change. Changing my pencil point to another place, I would ask, Shall I put it here? He would reply, Yes, here. He often acknowledged a correction by saying, Thank you. And when I made a suggestion, he would say, Yes, if you please. On all these occasions, the slate was four feet from the psychic and the writing out of sight and upside down to her eyes. End quote. This was completely baffling. It made absolutely certain that she could not and did not guide the pencil in any normal way. At the end of the sitting, the control, Dr. Coulter, came back to confuse the situation by saying, The music you obtained is not the reproduction of one of the composer's manuscripts, but a mental picture of the composition. Thereafter, the composer himself used the word scattered in describing this composition. He seemed to imply that he had sketched out his musical ideas on various detached bits of paper. Mary will know, he said. No more music today, whispered the control. And the sitting ended. This statement by the psychic's guide sounded to me like hedging. It was as if he were preparing me for disappointment. Fuller in his report absolved the psychic, as I did, of any complicity in the composition. I quote his report on this point. Quote, On the second day, during which the base of the composition was produced, the slate was exclusively in my control, the psychic not touching it at all. The progress of the writing was both felt and heard. It was a combination of light and rapid scratching, pecking and twitching, with an occasional slight waving motion of the slate up and down. End quote. Of the deep-reaching scientific implications of these phenomena on their physical side alone, I was especially aware. For while Fuller was acting as a manwensis, I had long hours in which to observe the psychic. And I repeat, whatever share Mrs. Hartley might have had in the mental side of this composition, she had nothing whatever to do in any normal way with the process of recording. In appearance, she was as much the onlooker as I. She said, I never had anything like this happen before. During most of this final hour, Fuller and the composer worked intently on their problems, seemingly without aid, certainly without any interference. As I have elsewhere recounted, some of the corrections were made on the closed slate by the composer's phantasmal fingers with inconceivable precision. Flags were added to the stems of notes, and notes were placed exactly on extra lines drawn at his request above or below the staff, and these purely physical effects absorbed my attention. As for the quality of the melody, it was manifestly not the kind of music which the psychic could analyze, much less write. It was elliptical, subtle, and touched with wistful melancholy. Although simple in appearance, said Fuller, it is absolutely not commonplace. So far as we could judge by his voice, the composer at the end of the seance was unwearied and intensely eager to go on. Reluctantly, he said, Goodbye, yeah, I am obliged to leave for Chicago this afternoon. 
With a promise to return the following morning, I too bade Edward good night with an apology for our failure to carry out his wishes. I did not record the exact words of his reply, and my memory is that he made no direct plea for our return. That night was another uneasy night. I suffered the conviction that Edward, in his mysterious place of being, was longing to go on with his composition. He had been so joyously active, so glad of our aid. Now we who had created his only channel of expression were about to fail him. He had seemed so real, so alive, that to disappoint him was a kind of treachery. My remorseful feeling was justified, for on going back to Mrs. Hartley's the next morning, I found him waiting for me, eager to proceed. He pleaded with me to go on, but I again protested. It is of no use, Edward. I can't receive your musical dictation, and Fuller has gone home. I can take down any messages you care to give, but I am utterly unable to record your music. The hour was as unsatisfactory to me as it was to him. Nothing new developed, and I made no record of the sitting. I merely set it down briefly as a failure. The fact is, Fuller's departure weakened our battery. That he gave definiteness as well as power to the manifesting intelligence was evident. The composer appeared bewildered by my action. Sadly and reluctantly, I said goodbye and came away. Chapter 17 There Was No Such Music Upon reaching my home in Chicago, I had Fuller come to dinner and together we reviewed our spirit music, comparing it with the score of McDowell's published piano pieces. We found that all the technical peculiarities which the invisible composer had used were employed in the sea pieces and New England idols. We found the device of tying three notes with a curved line with a figure two above it. Fuller said, if Mrs. Hartley had been a student of McDowell, or if she is familiar with his music, she may be able supernormally to reproduce one of his pages, or out of my own subconscious mind. As for the melody itself, it seems to me to be a mixture of your memory of certain Ute and Cheyenne songs with my knowledge of the work of McDowell's compositions. Granting that she is familiar with the McDowell music, you must admit that the method of communication was supernormal. Yes, the process remains inexplicable. My control of the slates was absolute. She did not once touch them during our last sitting. She could not even see them while the corrections were being made. Suppose we say that the voice was ventriloquistic. How can you explain the fact that our invisible speaker not only described the place, but the personnel of a dinner party at which you and I and McDowell were guests? I can't explain it, except to say that it was a clear case of mind reading. She couldn't possibly have known to that dinner party and its makeup. Fuller had transcribed the melody in regular form upon music paper and when my wife saw it, she asked him to play it. He declined. No, no. Last night, after I'd finished copying and I played it several times with the result that I could not get it out of my mind. It ran in my head all night. It's a weird little tune. I will not play it again. We urged him so strongly that at last he complied, and as that wistful melody, utterly unlike anything else I had ever heard, entered my ears, the same shudder that had seized me at the final sitting came back upon me. It was as if McDowell had laid his hand upon my shoulder. For several months, I felt this singular electrical shiver whenever I heard any of his music. Gradually, his emotion lessened and died away. The report which Fuller wrote at my request gives in detail his share in our most remarkable sittings. And in order that the reader may get a little closer to the mysteries of the process, I quote again, at the risk of repetition, his summing up of the evidence. He did this under three heads. Quote, 1. The composer is cooperator. The piece in three sharps opened on the tonic, yet the first note in the bass was G-sharp. The following colloquy ensued. Fuller, does the piece begin with the tonic chord of A? Composer, of course, that makes it right. How could it be otherwise? Here's another example, and the second bar, a note which I had taken for an eighth note, was explained by the composer as being a grace note. 
I pointed out that this left only five-eighth notes to fill a six-eighth measure. The composer then directed the insertion of an eighth rest at the beginning of the bar. In the fourth bar, there was a partial chord, E-B, a fifth. I drew the composer's attention to this blemish, and he requested the insertion of a G-sharp between, thus completing his triad. Fuller significantly interpolated this remark. These and other examples are not without resemblance of thought transference. 2. The composer and independence. Under this head may be placed as various instructions relative to tempo, expression, and the like. The signature was set down by myself as the result of an inquiry, but the time, 6-8, was written by the composer at my request. It was a distinct and separate effort for which the pencil was put in the slate and the slate placed beneath the table. The time was set down before the notes themselves were secured. The 6-8 sign was clearly and neatly written on the proper staff, in correct relation to the G-clef and to the signature, and the two figures were in correct relation to each other. All of this was done while Fuller held the slates entirely out of reach and out of sight of the psychic. The word moderate was written in by the composer's direction, without my request. Later, the words with feelings and the marks of expression PP were obtained in the same way. Ties, grace notes, and staccato marks were insisted upon by the composer with great vigor and earnestness. 3. The composer in opposition. I've said that some of the phenomena of Division 1 resembled thought transference, but numerous examples of cross-purposes between the composer and our circle now developed. On the first opening of the slate at our last sitting, I found that the seventh measure of the treble contained but two notes which the composer presently declared vocally to be quarter notes. This left the first third of the measure vacant. I called the composer's attention to this and he said, insert a quarter rest. I objected to this. It gives the measure a three-quarter look instead of a proper six-eighth look. Quick as a flash and a sharp whisper came his answer. That is a liberty I permit myself. At another stage, he requested that a certain note should have a dot added. I put the dot to the right of the note, thus lengthening its value one half. No, no, he whispered. Put it on top, above the staff. This made it evident that he could see the correction. This the psychic was wholly unable to do. In the eighth and last measure, which did not appear to be satisfactorily completed, the composer directed me to insert a figure two. I did not understand this and said so. The composer graciously replied, Never mind, I will write it differently. He canceled the figure two and completed the measure with a rest. Later I learned that he wished two quarter notes to receive the value of three eighth notes. A similar instance occurred in the fifth measure when the composer called insistently for a double sharp, X. I ventured to object and he replied, Try it on the piano. I did so. The double sharp was felt by him to be unsatisfactory. Take it out, he whispered. It won't make much difference anyway. With Fuller's technical report supplementing mine, I felt certain that I had obtained one of the most complete and highly intellectual records of identity as well as of supernormal physical phenomena in the whole range of psychic research. The next step, I said, is to lay all this before Mrs. McDowell. If she can find a musical fragment called Ungari among his papers, we score a triumphant finale. What if she cannot find such a manuscript? Well, we shall still have the inexplicable physical phenomena to ponder upon. Supernormal methods of transmission do not argue the truth of a message, but they suggest it. As soon as I was able to leave Chicago, I took these slates and other records of our sittings with me and started for New York, eager to secure Marion McDowell's comment upon them. I am willing to confess that I was a bit apprehensive of the effect of my story upon her. She was not recovered from her bereavement and my demand was exciting. I especially hoped that she would identify the very sketchy two bars of music which I had secured before Fuller joined me, and that they might prove to be from the opening movement of the Sonata Tragica. I was more excited, more expectant than I had ever been during my previous twenty years of experience with psychic phenomena. My interview was a disappointment. 
She listened while I described in detail the method of recording this music and these messages. The method was supernormal, but the proof of identification must come from you, I declared. I told her of the whispers. I dramatized the masterly technique of the invisible composer. The speaker was like Edward, I went on, describing how his message misread at first had persisted even against our contrary concept of its meaning. At last he whispered to me. He asked about you. He was anxious about you. He told me of this manuscript and said he would know about it. I want it recovered from Schubert and handed over to Schmidt for immediate publication, he said. I had expected, almost feared, that she would be greatly moved by my story, but she was not. On the contrary, she smiled as if amused. There's nothing to it, she briskly declared. There is no fragment called Ungari. There never was. I know every bar that Edward ever wrote. There never was such a composition. What about the message asking us to recover a manuscript in the hands of Schubert? That is especially absurd. Edward never dealt with Schubert. All his music went to Schmidt. Your composer was fooling you. He was impersonating Edward. Let us be quite sure, I urged. Let's ask the Schubert company. That is a most important test. This invisible composer addressed me exactly as Edward used to do, and the process of the composition was supernormal. She yielded. I will ask, but I know that I am right. She was. No trace of such a manuscript could be discovered, but I insisted that the mystery of that request remained. There is no explanation of it on any normal basis. The writer of those words, Hef Schubert, was eager to have it carried out, for he returned to it several times the following day. His will persisted in opposition to my concept. He seemed a very real and determined personality. In the midst of my disappointment, Mrs. McDowell, while examining one of the slates, suddenly flashed into keen interest. Pointing to the signature, Edward McDowell, which remained on one of the leaves, she sharply asked, Where did you get that? It came along with the other messages while the slate was in my hands. It came without contact by the psychic, but I gave no special thought to it, for it is not Edward's signature. Oh yes, it is, she replied. It is exactly as he signed his name when I first knew him in Leipzig, but it is wrongly spelled. It is Edward McDowell instead of Edward A. MacDowell, and it has a lot of absurd flourishes beneath it. That also is right. At that time he spelled his name McDowell and he used a boyish flourish under his name, just as it is here. As she spoke, a light broke upon me. I recalled seeing that signature. But where? Where? I raised my eyes to a letter in a small frame on the wall. There it is, I exclaimed. There it is in that frame, exactly as it is on the slate. She took the frame down from its hook and handed it to me in order that I might compare the signatures. The letter was a certificate stating that Miss Marion Nevins was a capable pianist, and it was signed Edward McDowell, with the same flourishes which underlined the signature I had supernormally received on the slates. How could that woman, who had never been in your home, duplicate a signature which she had never seen and which I had forgotten, I asked. Conceding for the sake of argument that it was not supernormally written, how shall we account for the psychic's reproduction of it? If she took it from my subconscious mind and reproduced it by sleight of hand, it is sufficiently wonderful. But the fact that it was written on closed slates held in my own hand shakes my concept of the material universe. The spiritist would say that Edward Sennett is a convincing sign to you. Mrs. McDowell's indifference to the musical message of EA was a setback, I willingly admit. She would not play the music, nor did she attempt to authenticate the bars which EA said were from the tragic sonata. I have never since heard Edward's voice. One other confession remains to be made. I never had the pigment of the writing chemically analyzed. I should have done so, but I didn't. I studied it under a microscope and was able to perceive that it was laid on rather than pressed into the surface of the slate. The writing, although I have carefully preserved these slates in the course of time, has faded out. 
Some of it is still legible, but none of it appears to have the permanent quality of the penciled initials which I put in the corners of the new slates for identification. There is a difference in the pigment. As for the book of Judas in which the supernormal transcription was made, I have not had recent opportunity to examine that. This should have been especially analyzed while its supernormal characteristics could have been attested by Fuller and the Judas. I confess my negligence. Today they are all gone, and John's books are scattered. The score of Ungari was lost during the removal of my own library, but most of my notes remain. As I re-examine the records in the light of later knowledge, they gain rather than lose in significance. From time to time I experienced a pang of remorse. I ought to go on with it, I said to Fuller. Edward may be waiting for us. Had I been a little more certain of those whispers, I might have returned to push investigations forward. I never did. Something in my mind, some barrier could not be overcome. I wished to be convinced, but my desire was not strong enough to lead to further action. Hawthorne, in one of his pages on Florence, states with masterly brevity and poise the character of this mental barrier. Quote, What most astonishes me is the indifference with which I listen to these spiritualistic marvels. They are absolutely proved to be sober facts by evidence that would satisfy us of any other alleged realities, and yet I cannot force my mind to interest myself in them. They are facts to my understanding, but they seem not to be facts to my intuitions and deeper perceptions. My inner soul does not in the least admit them. There is a mistake somewhere. End quote. So with me at the close of this amazing series of happenings, my intuitions would not allow me to surrender my faith in the scientific concept of the universe around me. Chapter 18 Soldiers in the Sky Maurice Maeterlinck, in commenting on the post-war worldwide wave of interest in spiritism, made a very curious statement concerning the effect of military slaughter on this revival. After remarking, as many others have done, upon the passionate search for consolation in which millions of bereaved fathers and mothers were engaged, he said, quote, Our memories are peopled with a multitude of heroes struck down in the flower of their youth, a very different host from the pale and languid cohorts of the past composed almost entirely of the sick and the old. And upon this fact, I base my belief that from this numerous and powerful throng of young spirits, there must result an immense and immediate gain in our positive knowledge of the world beyond the grave. End quote. The singular part of this statement, to me, lies in the frank admission on the part of the Belgian mystic that the body's weakness or age can profoundly affect the soul, and that the spirit of a young man is a more powerful agency for intercommunication between our plane and theirs than that of an aged philosopher. I am loath to grant that a man's soul is conditioned by his body. That the war gave an enormous impetus to the study of psychic phenomena, I admit. But a simple explanation of it lies in the force of worldwide unnatural bereavement. The desire to bring back the dead was strongly increased by the millions of sons, husbands, and fathers who were slain. This was made evident in my small world by the increasing number of those who came to me seeking a source of comfort. Do you know a reliable medium to whom I can go for consolation, each mourner demanded of me? In this lies the strength of the spirit hypothesis. It offers something audible and tangible to the mourner. There is another angle to Maeterlinck's statement. Not only were the slain soldiers mostly young, but their fathers and mothers were still in the full tide of life, subject to intenser emotion than the aged. And as seekers, they undoubtedly added their force to the wave of spiritism which went round the earth. Along with this passionate hope went a loss of faith in the wisdom of the ancients. The demand was for experiment, for proof. All that the Greeks or Romans had, we have, they said. We must find our answers to our own questions. Socrates and Plato knew more about death than we do. The problem is one of today, our day. We must solve it for ourselves. Do our dead still live? 
In this attitude, I profoundly sympathized. I did not believe the report of those who saw the soldiers in the sky at the Battle of Mons, but I shared the conviction that if the souls of the soldiers had outlived their mangled bodies, there should be a way of proving it. Quoting ancient script, whether Greek, Roman, Hebrew, or Chinese was of no value to me. I remained wholly sympathetic with the scientific method of inquiry. When the body dies, does the soul persist is the question, and I believed it to be a legitimate problem for science. Sir Oliver Lodge is the most outstanding illustration of the effect of the war on a father. Although one of the most eminent of our physicists, he published in 1916 a book called Raymond, in the preface of which he writes of the appalling amount of premature and unnatural bereavement caused by the war and bravely proclaims his belief in the fact of survival after death and invites the reader to follow his argument. Raymond was his son, slain in France, and the book is a statement of the evidence on which he was willing to stake his great reputation as chemist, physicist, and philosopher. He says, death is not a serious matter, it is only a moment of change like birth. And one section of his book is filled with records of Raymond's communications, conversations which convinced Sir Oliver of his son's lively existence and led to his publicly proclaiming it on the platform in America as well as in England. Another great advocate to whom the soldiers in the sky were not wholly a fantastical vision was Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who once similarly bereaved by the war became an unfaltering evangelist. He toured Australia, Canada, and the United States proclaiming his faith. He wrote incessantly. He financed spiritualist organizations for experiment and aided magazines for the promulgation of his faith. He turned his almost unequaled popularity as a novelist into channels of propaganda whose persuasiveness gave new power to the spiritualistic hypothesis. He came to America in 1922 and proved himself to be the most eloquent of all modern advocates of spirit communication. He addressed enormous audiences wherever he went putting in plain words what Lodge had cautiously clothed in scientific phrase. His influence was immeasurable. As an old friend and fellow craftsman, I presented him to his first audience in America, an audience such as I'd never before faced, and in his home in Sussex, I afterwards listened to his experiences in a most intimate way. No comment on the post-war revival of interest in matters psychical can leave out the testimony of this beloved author, who was a soldier as well as a physician. During the actual period of strife, European experiment naturally languished. But in the four or five years immediately following the war, books on psychic research multiplied. Gelli, Rocher, Osti, and many other European scientific men issued reports which summed up their experiments. Among the most valuable of these books is Schrank Notzing's amazing record of four years' experiment with two young psychics in Paris, a careful, systematic, relentless study of the phenomena of materialization. It is one of the most searching investigations ever made. For at every stage of his test, skillful photographs were taken, and the reader can follow step by step the process by which he reached his conclusions. It is an appalling record. As I read the thick volume, I found confirmations of my own belief that a luminous substance does veritably emerge from the body of a psychic, streaming from her lips, her cheeks, and her bosom. For in the book, the substance is pictured, photographed in the act of condensing into hands, faces, heads, and even into male forms of giant size. In these photographs can be seen the distorted faces of the mediums whose expressions of pain and effort gave indubitable evidence of the destructive physical process of mediumship. In some of the pictures, the psychic's head appears to be melting away to form a spirit face. Others of these phantoms, small at first and delicate as a rose, are shown expanding like an opening flower or vanishing like mist. Keen, bright, beautiful faces peer from the cabinet while the psychic, with bowed head and a look of agony on her face, endures the light of the magnesium torch. Her pain resembled childbirth, the author bluntly states. At times she seems to sleep, at others she was alert and wholly normal in mood. These photographs were of especial interest to me, 
for I'd seen similar forms and shadowy actions and had longed to picture them. I had felt such hands. I had seen this mist rise and develop what appeared to be a vague human figure, but I had never been able to use a flashlight camera. Looking back over my experiences, I recalled scores of test materializations of which similar pictures should have been taken by myself or some other. Suppose we had operated a modern camera when in Flower's home invisible fingers picked up the scattered sheets of paper on the table, thrust a pin through them, and laid them aside on a sofa. We might have caught the form of the ghost who worked this miracle. In the case of Daniel Peters, we might have secured a picture of the hand which clasped my wrist and lifted the glass of water to the psychic's lips. If Schrenknotzing's report stood alone, it would mark an epoch in the study of spiritualistic phenomena, but it does not stand alone. In January 1918, while the war was still going on, Dr. Gustav Gelli read before the General Psychologique Institute of Paris a paper in which he substantiated all that Schrenknotzing had observed. He showed the Institute scores of flashlight photographs and stated that his findings had been verified and checked by nearly 100 experts, mostly doctors. He says of the ectoplasm, quote, It is variable in color, white, gray, black. It is mobile and timid, retreating to the medium as if for protection. It is sensitive to the light, and strong rays cast upon it give pain to the psychic. It has an immediate irresistible tendency to organize itself. It remains but a moment in its original shape. It forms hands, limbs, faces, complete bodies. It has no means of defending itself. It is like a timid animal. It is ephemeral, yet capable of appearing solid and permanent." End quote. He adds, quote, I have seen the complete process. I have seen the substance coming from the fingers of the medium like a fringe, a veil to become finally a hand or a visage. Sometimes it exudes from the body of the psychic and settles like hoarfrost upon her clothing, forming a sort of apron out of which a head or face appears. End quote. There are no qualifications in this statement. It is bold, definite, and inclusive. The working hypothesis of all these later investigations seems to be this. Some human organisms are able to throw off a physical substance which tends to take shape in obedience to the thought of the psychic or to the thought of the sitter. The substance is capable of being modeled by the mind of the psychic or sitter as wax is modeled by a sculptor. That is to say, it is idioplastic. And this is proven by the fact that inanimate objects, portraits, dream pictures, cats, dogs, and even imaginary animals are materialized. In conclusion, Jelly says, quote, It is my opinion metaphysical science involves inferences which will revolutionize biology and psychology. I abstain from all theory and from all attempts to explain these facts. End quote. When one reads these two cold-blooded reports, the stories of the soldiers in the sky are less fantastical than they appeared at first to be. If this were not there, imagination could put them there. In my long experience up to this date, I have never seen the materialization of any animal. But I had argued thus. If the shapes which ectoplasm takes are controlled by the thought of the sitters, I see no reason why a pet poodle or a parrot should not be materialized. It is recorded of an Italian medium that one evening after a long sitting, one which she could scarcely bring to a close, she went for relaxation to a cafe with some friends and that while seated at the table, something, some anomalous form developed beneath the dining table. One of the party remarked, there's a dog under the table. Upon examination, no dog was visible, but a moment later another of the group said, it is a cat. I felt a paw with sharp claws on my knee. Again, the space was examined, but no animal was visible. Thinking created it, and thinking took it away. This theory also accounts for the curious and suspicious fact that many of the spirit photographs I have seen appear to be copies of family portraits. If these are ideographs, it is natural that they should resemble the sitter's memory of a family portrait. 
If I were called upon to describe my father or mother, I should perceive them as sitting for their portraits. It is easier to recall them in some one fixed position than in action. There is no reason to cry fraud because these spirit portraits look like copies of pictures on the wall. The ideographic theory may also be taken to explain why so many materialized forms are dressed as orientals. They are forms born of the psychic's belief in East Indian magic and wisdom. In the desire to hold an even hand over this discussion, I present the spiritualist's rejoinder. Very well. We accept the ectoplasmic theory. We grant these forms are idioplastic. But why limit the creative force to the psychic and her sitters? We say the modeling can be done and is done by disincarnate minds. That is to say, by spirits. These materializations are a mixture of forms shaped not only by the minds of the medium and the sitters, but by beings who are acting from another plane. Your idioplastic theory does not exclude spirit return. There is enough logic in this retort to give me pause. I am not prepared to deny the possibility of disincarnate action, but I am not convinced of it. I shall continue to experiment until the weight of evidence is on one side of the scales, giving full weight to all evidence pointing to the identity of the manifesting spirit. Granting the objectivity of all the phenomena detailed by a Korowitz, Schrenk, Notzing, and Lodge, I continued to press the question, are these human shapes in any way related to the spirits of the dead, or are they only soldiers in the sky? In partial answer to this, Dr. Jelly says, quote, In all mediumistic phenomena, one observes a marked tendency toward personation, but the mediumistic personality is insignificant and ephemeral. Nevertheless, it declares itself a true individual separate from the medium, I consider it as probable that the action of these entities is distinct from the medium. In a word, the phenomena induced by the medium appear to indicate, to require and to proclaim a knowledge, a power surpassing even the subconscious faculties of the medium." End quote. This appeared to be the case of the composer in my experiments in recording his music. You've been listening to Classic Paranormal's reading of 40 Years of Psychic Research by Hamlin Garland. This was the sixth installment. Be sure to click into the succeeding episodes until the book is complete. Until then, followers of the freaky, aficionados of the afterworldly, connoisseurs of the creepy, stay spooky. Stay spooky.